Greetings, I'm Tyler, and this is The Socialized Recluse. My guest this time is writer of history, Hollywood, and horses, the little ones, Christina Rice. Her latest book, Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, is out this week from University Press of Kentucky. We'll be talking about that as well as her previous book, and Dvorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel, the product of a nearly two-decade-plus obsession with one of the most underrated and criminally unknown actors in film history. We'll also be chatting about her work on IDW's My Little Pony comic series and how she managed to bring her love of classic film to the land of Equestria. Insert obligatory programming note regarding dogs, but this time, it's not mine making their presence known, but Christina's leaping in to fill the void left by mine, who were amazingly, shockingly calm and asleep in the other room, blissfully unaware of the goings-on inside these headphones. But anyhow, I'm sure that mine will make their return to your ear drums next time. As ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise at me, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com, and you can listen to earlier episodes of the show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod. And with that, here's my chat with Christina. So I guess the first thing I need to tell you is that I I finished the outlaw. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. <laughs> How I, many sittings did it take? I did it in two. Okay. I, I did it. Good. So I, I I think when we first talked, I had done that like first hour, not even. I don't think I even made it that hour. And and that, but then I was just saying, you know what? She sat through this movie like four thousand times to write this book. I can make it one time. I can do this. Thank you. Yeah, and it it was awful, and I don't know how you did it. it yeah, I don't know either. You were you were awake by the end, like you. you made I I was okay. So my wife actually came home early from work that day and sat down and and started watching like midway through, and she's like, "What are you watching?" <laughs> and she's like, "This is really boring." I'm like, I know, I know, I don't get it. I'm, but yeah. So yeah, I just I was just like you. You endured this movie. I can do this for an, you know, to talk to you for an hour. I can make it through one time. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I really appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. that was not easy. Have you recovered from that yet? Not completely. Yeah. No, not yeah. not really. <laughs> not not really. You know, but honestly, I I I don't know that I'll do it. But I'm almost <laughs> tempted to write an entire book on the outlaw because you know, like yeah. I, I include I included the things like very relevant to Jane. But my God, there's so much more that you could really write a book on this this movie. This terrible movie is so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you you, you had like what four chapters or something, four or five chapters in the book on <laughs> I, on, on that I, on just getting that movie made. <laughs> So many chapters. I, I felt like I was I was writing about the outlaw for months. I felt like I was never going to stop. I don't know. How, I don't know how you did it. I I was just, I, you know, I, it was just like okay. I'm glad that like the, the 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 making of it was so fascinating. But it was just like, and it all came out to this. You know, <laughs> it was. Like, well, could, 
Yeah. Could, I mean, could you imagine at the time being like a film goer and, and having like a decade of buildup and then you finally go to see it and that's what it is? Well, it should have, it should have just, you know, been one of those like the myths, you know, that it was never released and it probably would have been considered a classic if it had never come out. <laughs> just the, oh, yeah. the marketing itself was so amazing for it, but, and, and horrible at the same time. But, um, so, but I also rewatched Scarface. And I, I mean, it was like the first time in years that I've seen it. And I had the exact same reaction to Anne the second time as I did the first time, which was, who is she? I mean, she just lit up that screen. She made the movie come alive as soon as she came on screen. It was amazing. Oh, it is. And yeah, that's another movie I had to watch a lot of times while writing that book and about Anne Dvorak. And, yeah. and that was perfectly fine. Yeah. Because <laughs> Scar- Scarface is amazing. And what's so incredible about Anne, there's lots of things incredible about Anne in that movie, but that was her first credited role. Yeah. You know, she was, you know, she was cast when she was 19, I think turned turned 20 um, right around the time she was making it. And, you know, she had done a bunch of movies at MGM as a chorus girl. So she she had been in front of the camera a lot, but that's her first acting role, credited role. And she's just incredible. Oh, I love that performance. Yeah, she was absolutely amazing. But but that watching those two polar opposites back to back. It really like drove home the point for me, which is, and I guess a question I had for you, which is, what was it about Jane that made her able to handle and sort of thrive in that studio system with a shitty movie? <laughs> while, yeah. Well, oh, your dog beat us to the. There he your is. Your dog yeah, beat I my. Win. Oh, you won. You won. So I get a prize. You do. You get a prize. I haven't figured out what it is yet, but there will be a prize. <laughs> Um, but so, you know, Jane starred in this terrible movie, but at the same, but thrived in the studio system while, while Anne debuted in this spectacular film and didn't. And I, what was it about their characters that made this kind of weird thing happen? Yeah, I mean, with Anne, you know, it, it, it's interesting that I ended up writing books about two women, both who were discovered by Howard Hawks mm-hmm. and put under contract by Howard Hughes. It's okay. Um, you know, for their debut movies, which, you know, is this weird commonality between the two of them. Um, you know, and Anne walked out on Howard Hughes, you know, yeah. or I shouldn't say she walked out, but he, he sold her contract to Warner Brothers. And, you know, maybe she could have been a big star at Warner Brothers, but instead she decided to, you know, to walk out on Warner Brothers and go on a honeymoon and badmouth the studio in the process. So that was kind of where Anne made her mistake. And, you know, and she did that before she was really an established star. Right. With Jane, Jane, Jane's career is so bizarre because, you know, Jane stuck with Howard Hughes, you know, for, for the duration and he promoted her so much um, so that Jane was a house kind of a household name before that movie even came out mm-hmm. um, because he put so much behind her and she was splashed across you know, magazines and newspapers for years, you know, and also all of that publicity, you know, coincided with World War II. So she became a popular pinup. So she just became really well known before this movie ever came out. Her nickname was the motionless picture actress. Um, But the fact that she 
like not only resonated for a decade because it took you know like the outlaw was released it was shot in 41 it was kind of released in 46 and didn't get a big release until 50 and then throughout the entire 1940s she only had two other movies the young widow in 46 which you know isn't the best i don't think it's the best showcase of her skills and finally the pale face in 48 with bob hope which is incredible that that was her third movie um so I just think it's a kind of a testament to Jane that she just, you know, one is such a magnetic personality on screen. Like even as, as bad as the outlaw is and as bad as her performance is, like you still kind of get it. Like you yeah. can see why Howard Hawks cast her and you can see why Howard Hughes became so enamored with her. And as she finally kind of grew, grew into that movie star role, I and mean, she is like, she is stunning and she is magnetic and she never took herself seriously mm-hmm. i think was part of it and she wasn't she was never particularly ambitious so okay. you know it's like she she became a film actress and that was something she could do and make good money at it but she didn't really pursue it so she could kind of take it or leave it so maybe it was that attitude that just came across that she so just didn't give a damn yeah that um it just something about that made her just so appealing um but you know i i i at the end of the day, I do think it's it's amazing she actually had a career because the 1940s were just so silly for her yeah. because of because of Howard Hughes. Right. And, you know, kind of a lot happened between the time they shot that movie and released it. Um, <laughs> I mean, a lot happened, you know, in, including Howard Hughes, you know, crashing his plane into Beverly Hills. Yeah. So, just so, that so minor thing. Yeah. Yeah. What stood out to you? about the working relationships each had with the two Howards? Um, well, first off, you know, you have to look at the relationship that, that the two Howards had with each other. Okay. So, you know, with, with Scarface, Howard Hughes, you know, kind of gave Hawks, hey, that this is kind of what I want to do. And Hawks said, yeah, okay. And just kind of, you know, went and did his own thing. But Howard Hughes left him alone on Scarface. And so he made this incredible movie. And there were issues, you know, even though this is before the code was being enforced, there were certainly issues with the censors because of the violence and, you know, supposedly glamorizing gangsters. Um, You know, and Hughes went to bat for Hawks. And it was just a really great working relationship between the two of them. And so, you know, a decade later, Hughes decides to do it again and, you know, has Hawks, you know, he wants to do a Billy the Kid story. And as soon as filming begins and it's on location in Arizona, Hughes just starts to meddle. So whereas he left Hawks alone on Scarface, he really starts meddling and kind of micromanaging and being overbearing, which Howard Hawks just wouldn't stand for. And so that's, you know, why that movie turned out the way it did was because Hawks walked off of it and told Howard Hughes, just direct it yourself, man. And and Howard Hughes did. And unfortunately, Howard Hughes was not a director. Which is, yeah, you know, yeah that, that's putting it kindly. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, so, you know, that's, you know, like, uh, you know, a reason why Scarface, you know, is, is so fantastic and the outlaw, you know, necessarily not, isn't. Yeah. I, I, I do think in, in both cases with Anne Dvorak and Jane Russell, I would go so far as to say that you know, their performances under Howard Hawks in um, Scarface. And then, you know, eventually Jane worked with him in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes um, are the best performances of their career. I think he just, Howard Hawks really brought out 
the best in them. Um, Hawks also directed uh, Anne in the Crowd Roars with James Cagney and Joan Blondell, and her performance is okay, but it's not it's not much of a role. Whereas Cheska and Scarface is just a marvelous role. Right. Um, you know, and and you know Howard Hughes was. I don't know how. I, I think I think after he saw Scarface is when he probably saw something in Anne enough to sign her to a contract. But very quickly he turns around and sells the contract to Warner Brothers for for forty grand. Mm-hmm. Had sold Gene Harlow's contract to MGM for thirty grand. I was like pointing out that at one point in time Anne Dvorak was worth more than Gene Harlow from a studio <laughs> standpoint. Um, you know, and these are two like dynamic actresses he had under contract, and he made you know he made a profit, and that was you know Howard Hughes was a you know he he was a brilliant businessman, um, and with Jane he just decided he wasn't going to do that. Like he decided like sh- you know he he let these other ones go. I think probably particularly Jean Harlow, and he was going to hang on to Jane, mm-hmm. and so that's why you know he he kept her under contract and he kept renewing her contract and people you know were frequently whispering in Jane's ear, you can go somewhere else and get a better deal and. She stayed incredibly loyal to him, and you know it kind of paid off because eventually he signs a twenty-year contract where she's getting a thousand bucks a week, without actually making movies for him for years. And you know he said he gave her that contract, um, you know, so that he, if, he, if he paid her a little bit at a time, you know, he would be collecting all of that interest. And but I think also it, it was you know kind of a thank you to Jane for, for being loyal to him over the years and kind of not screwing him over like a lot of people probably did. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely that loyalty just came through. Is she, in spite of Howard Hughes being Howard Hughes, especially you know the the tilt towards the insane was coming at that point. I mean, the the meddling and all of that. Am I getting my timelines wrong, or is that? Oh, with Hughes, oh, I think it was always there. Yeah, yeah, it just got a little bit more <laughs> exacerbated after the plane crash. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it, it was, yeah, he, he is fascinating. He's a fascinating yeah. guy, you know, and, and years and years later, there's an interview with Robert Osborne. He was interviewing Jane and Robert Mitchum, mm-hmm. um, and who, who had both been under contract to Hughes at RKO. And Osborne said, you know, if, if we knew Howard Hughes as you two knew Howard Hughes, would we all still be as fascinated as we are? And both of them were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. What came first for you? Was it the love of classic film or the love for Guns N' Roses? <laughs> it was a love of classic film. Okay. Um, because I have been enamored with classic film kind of as, as long as I can remember. Um, you know, I can remember watching, you know, because, you know, back when I was I was a kid in the late 70s, early 80s, and mm-hmm. oh, my dog is making super disgusting noises. And I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. Um, you know, and, and back then, like, you know, classic films would just be on TV. They would be on primetime. And so I can remember watching them with my grandmother and just thought the, the visuals of, of the old movies were, were just incredible. Yeah. Because you know, the studio system just did things perfectly. And when I was, um, I think I was five years old, uh, we used to have um, Movie Land Wax Museum okay. that was in Buena Park. And, and, it was th- it opened in 1962 and so it just had all these classic stars and i went when i was probably 5 years old and i loved it i thought it was the greatest place in the world to this day i still view it as the greatest place in the world even though it closed in 2005 and i remember being very um 
frustrated that I didn't know who most of the figures were. So like I knew, you know, I knew Shirley Temple and the Wizard of Oz and, the, you know, Superman was in there that mm-hmm. just opened. But that was, you know, like one of my very early, probably my first like big long-term goal in my life was to be able to walk through Movie Land Wax Museum and know who everyone was. That's a good so goal. So I just, it was, and, and I did it. I'm That's awesome. All right. I did it. And and I now have um, the 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 sign off of Movie Land Wax Museum's roof in my backyard. <laughs> That's that your your trophy. You have won. I have won. You have won. So um, yeah. So Guns and Roses, uh, Appetite for Destruction came out when I was thirteen. So yeah. So yeah. that yeah, okay. That 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 is why. That's uh, a classic film for set. No, and I'm, I remember Gone with, Gone with the Wind being on. You know, like network television when I was probably like six or seven years old. And my mm-hmm. mother like making me, and I didn't want to watch it. And she made me watch it. And the second Vivian Lee popped up on screen, that was, oh, okay. And I just <laughs> absolutely, you know, fell in love. You know, and I realized, you know, at a very young age that um, like adults would actually want to talk to me. Like not as a kid, but would actually want to have conversations with me about classic film. And so I think that was something that um, I always appreciated that, uh, you know, like I would not be treated like a kid because I love yeah. classic movies. I thought that was super cool. Yeah, I, I can remember getting some, something similar to that. Yeah it, yeah, it was. There was sort of a you 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 kind of were able to enter a conversation on a different level with in their eyes. Yeah, absolutely. When it came time to, I mean, researching all all of this and not just you know being stuck watching the outlaw um how did your background as a librarian help get you through some of the like the holes in the primary research yeah i mean i i feel like i am you know so fortunate that you know i i am a librarian and i work at central library in downtown los angeles and you know so one of the advantages is, you know, just by nature, you become aware of certain sources or resources for finding things. Um, You know, and that like with Anne, that, that helped, you know, tremendously. And then once I got to Jane, you know, I felt, because with with Anne, I started researching her when I was in my twenties and before, you know, I I became a librarian, so I didn't know what I was doing. And so by the time I started Jane, it's like, okay, well, I know how to research because I've been helping, you know, I've been doing it myself, but also helping people professionally. Um, But man, I, I, I constantly have to, you know, acknowledge and am so grateful that you like my, one of the main, you know, kind of weapons in my arsenal are the other librarians that I work with because I would, you know, kind of hit these research walls and I would turn to them and it's just amazing what they can pull out of their hat, you know, because with Jane, um, one of the big parts of Jane's story is that she, she started a foundation called WAIF in the fifties or an organization that, you know, advocated for international adoption and and was the fundraising arm for international social services. And during my research, like it, like WAIF comes up a lot. So it comes up, you know, in articles, you know, there was a WAIF ball or Jane did this with WAIF and she would talk about it. She writes about it in her own memoir but it still is this very vague thing. Like there's this, this thing called waif. And I didn't really know, I couldn't really get a grasp on exactly what it was. And so I went to one of the librarians in our, our social sciences, philosophy and religion department. I'm like, Hey, can you help me figure out if something was officially a nonprofit? Cause like, I can't figure it out. And I, you know, I don't know how to find this and it dealt with adoption. 
And so that, that was my angle. Like my angle was, yeah. well, let, let me figure out if there's, you know, if it was a nonprofit and if there's articles of incorporation and if I can find that material. And this librarian, he goes to their files on adoption that he knew they had in the department. And he comes up with this fat folder on Jane Russell and Waif, you know, including wow. like this silver Jubilee program that listed every chapter that was around in the eighties and had wow. this whole big, you know, all of these photographs and this whole history of it and then all of the names of the people involved and because of that I was able to track down this guy who was the executive director of WAIF for like 20 years and I was able to interview him Okay. and so you know that was something the book it might have you know for as important as it is it might have been kind of just a glossed over chapter had I not turned to this librarian at Central Library. So thank you, Greg, that just, you know, and, and there was also like congressional testimony in this and other articles about it. So it was just incredible. So um, the moral of the story is not everything is online. And go go talk to librarians because they, they know what they're doing. They really do. And they desperately, we desperately want to help you. Like we, we love the hard questions that we have to find those resources that, you know, and who, who had touched that folder? Who had touched the Jane Russell adoption folder in the last like 40 years, you know? Was, was there, one, Jane or Anne, was one more difficult than the other to find, to, to research? Oh, Anne was infinitely more difficult to okay. research. Yeah, because there just, there hadn't been a whole lot written about her so i mean there you know there were there were a few reasons why it took me 15 years to complete the and book but just that that lack of okay. resources was a huge one but with jane it was it was kind of like an opposite problem that there was so much because jane is so heavily documented and there was just so much out there that I had to figure out what I wouldn't, what, what I was not going to use. You know, with Anne, I think everything I found on her is in that book. Like every last thing went into that book. Whereas Jane, that's not true. Like I had to leave a lot out because with Jane, there was just so much. Was there something in particular with Anne? I mean, just like that you could name off the top of your head that you wish you could have found that you weren't able to get your hands on? You know, with Anne. I think overall, I think I did pretty good, to be okay. honest with you. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what happened with Anne, though, was that, you know, I, I, I finished the book and I turned it in. And, you know, Anne, um, in 1932, you know, she, she had eloped with one of her co-stars, Leslie Fenton. And he, he was like a vagabond and he, he loved to travel and didn't um ha he, he never tied himself down to a studio and didn't have contracts and mm -hmm. he convinced Anne to walk out on her contract which mm -hmm. is kind of what torpedoed her career but this this honeymoon you know they were in europe and they went to africa and just kind of you know bummed around for like eight months and it was hugely significant for Anne. i think it was probably you know probably the most important like eight months of her life or the most memorable and <clears throat> excuse me when i turned in the manuscript I didn't have any, I had a whole chapter on this honeymoon and no photos from it, which really bummed me out. Okay. Um, and I thought, well, the, the book is, is really, you know, it, it, it's incomplete, but it's the best I can do. And like three weeks later, um, this person contacts me and they're like, you know, I have a bunch of Anne's stuff that was like saved from the trash, like great stuff. And there's lots of photos. And, and it turned out it was the photos from the honeymoon. 
Oh, wow. It was like her scrapbook of photos from this honey. And this person was super difficult. They <laughs> wanted like $5,000 for everything, which even if I had it, I don't know that I would have paid it. Yeah. And a, a friend of mine who is an agent, I like, can like, can you, can you deal? You're, you know, you're, you're used to negotiating. So, you know, he, he got the stuff for me. So he, he not only got, um, the scrapbook of photos. So I was able to include these honeymoon photos, but there was a journal from the end of her life. And there was, um, some letters that a friend had written. And so it was just a handful of things, but they really helped fill out a lot of the blanks and they actually changed the ends of the book. So, oh, wow. you know, I, okay. I, origi- I, I originally thought that Anne in the early seventies had had, you know, she had, she had been living in Hawaii right. and she had her third husband was very abusive and had, you know, spent all of her money. Um, and at one point she left him to take care of her mother who was in Santa Monica. And I was always under the impression after her mother passed away from cancer, she went back to the husband and through this last minute stash of things that I found, I discovered she, 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 did, she never went back to the guy. Like she returned to Hawaii uh-huh. after he died. And for me, that was a huge victory for Anne. Yeah. Um, and I liked that, you know, I, I, I think it, and you know, I, it ended on more of a high note than it would have originally. Um, but the one thing that it does frustrate me about Anne is that I don't have any photos of her third husband. Okay. Um, and I found, oh, I think it was like a niece of his who had a photo of him and Anne, and I was going out of town, so she just popped it in the mail. Oh. She popped this photo in the mail, and it never arrived. Oh. And, yeah. you know, had, had I not been going out of town, I could have just, because she, like, lived in, like, I'm in, I'm in North Hollywood, Swimmins in Long Beach. I could have been there in 45 minutes, and... Yeah, so somewhere, somewhere sitting, I don't know, in some postal bin somewhere <laughs> is a photo of Anne Dvorak and Nicholas Wade that, that should have been in my book, but sadly is not. Um, but yeah, with the Anne, I'm, I'm, I'm proud because I certainly dug up more. And th- that book certainly took as long as it needed to take mm-hmm. because had it come out even a month earlier, it wouldn't have included those things. Right, you wouldn't have had so, that at different ending, the the. You know, giving her that positive send off. Exactly. You know, and, yeah. and that book, the book took forever. Um, and I always, yeah, I would beat for years, would beat myself up. God, why can't I just get this thing done? And in the end, it took exactly as long as it needed to take to, to tell her story. Yeah, I've always found that the, the books take as long as they take. And yeah. even if you don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, that was especially if you don't like it. They take as long as they t- they're going to take they their do. own time. They are absolutely. So I mean, so Anne was clearly a, a passion project. I mean, you got married at at her her ranch, the at the ranch house. Am I correct? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was um, kind of what what remains of a of a large walnut ranch that okay. she and her first husband um, built and have lived on. So yeah, that's where my husband and I got married. Yeah. And, and I mean, and so that that passion, I mean, it's it's clear in the book. And I was just wondering, though, is is how did Jane become enough of a passion for you to write about without the, the, the benefit of those that decade of obsession, decades of passion and obsession you had for Anne? I mean, so was it was it like a, a different sort of passion for Jane versus Anne or? I don't 
know if I would, I don't know if I would call it a passion. So yeah, with Anne, like Anne is my heart. Right. I, I love, I love Anne so much. And I feel like, you know, one of the reasons I was put on this earth was to help tell her story. And, you know, I've been collecting on Anne for God, like over, I think like 25 years now. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like I am truly the custodian of Anne's legacy because no, nobody else really was interested in doing that. You know, at least, you know, the time that I found her um, with Jane, I think it was more, it was more of a challenge. Okay. So I did feel, I felt like Jane would be a challenge um, like in a different way, you know, because there, there was so much out there on Jane because she, she wrote her own memoir. So, you know, we have, you know, and because Jane, she was a very forthright person and she's a very reliable narrator. Um, so there's just not a lot of BS to wade through with Jane, which, which I found interesting. Um, but I also, what I really wanted to do was to like really present Jane as a person because I think she is often just reduced to that image on the haystack with the guns. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things I figured when I started, when I first started researching, I thought, gosh, there's been so much written about Howard Hughes that it should be really easy for me to, you know, kind of look at that and, you know, kind of get, get a sense of Jane. And when it came to kind of scholarship about the outlaw and about Howard Hughes, she's always very much treated as a thing. Like she's Mm -hmm. always treated as an object. Um, which I found kind of offensive. And I think a lot of the times when Jane has been written about, uh, it tends to be men writing about her. And so I kind of wanted to try to tell her story from a woman's perspective. And so that was something that was kind of a driving force for me was to do that. And so, um, you know, and I think she's, she's a person that has a, a, a ton of name recognition, but not a lot of people know a whole lot about her. And I was definitely in that camp going into this. You know, I knew the outlaw. I knew gentlemen prefer blondes. I knew playtex bras. And that was it. And so I think she's somebody who's, who's you know, she, she's interesting. She's super complex. And that, um, you know, she's a very contradictory person. And it was an interesting challenge because, you know, to, to present her fully and to present her without judgment. And I tried to be as objective as I could. And, and I hope I was. And, you, were. you know, I, and I think the stuff that she did with Waif is fantastic. I think it's incredible. Like it is incredible that this person was somebody who saw her celebrity, uh, celebrity that she had very conflicted feelings about and that she transformed it into something that was super meaningful to her. And it wasn't, fake and it wasn't glossy and it wasn't to present a certain image to the world. Cause I think Jane just didn't care about that. Um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of her that's fascinating. And the fact that nobody else had written a book about her was, was kind of astounding. It so, really was, um, yeah. I've... Yeah. So I, I think it, you know, and I, and I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, you know, like with, with Anne, that book was me being a fangirl. <laughs> And, and with Jane, I can actually call myself an author now. I think you said in the in the was it in the in the preface to Anne, I think it, it was that it, it gave you the confidence to, you know, you started as a what was it as a college girl and then through writing about her became a professional. Yeah. 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 
Absolutely. And yeah. And with Jane, you know, I, I, yeah. Although I have to admit, like when, when I sat, when I actually, and I got through, cause, cause research, I, I can research anything. Like right. you throw any topic at me and I will dive in, you know, like one of my coworkers calls me the reference terrier. Cause I just, <laughs> God, do I love research. But when I sat down to like write the Jane Russell book, I was like, I don't know how to, how, I can't do this. How did I, like, how the hell did I write a book? I don't know how I wrote the end of our book. That must've been, you know, that must've been somebody else. It, you know, it was just so bizarre how I just had this huge block when I started to, to write Jane that my God, how, how does one even write a book? You know, and then you just, you just start doing it and eventually it all, it all kind of barks out on the page. How did you get seemed, through the block? I just, you know, just started writing. Yeah. I just. Yeah. And that's the thing. You just, you know, you just start writing, you know, and it's like with Anne, I I had that, that block where I would, where I would work, you know, I would start writing and I wanted it all to be perfect. And I would be putting my citations in and pulling quotes and it just took forever. And I finally figured out that I needed to kind of barf it onto the page. Mm-hmm. And so with Anne, um, you know, I usually take the, the train to work. And so I just started writing on the train and just, you know, within a couple of months had a skeleton of the book had that whole story on the page that I just went back and kind of added the, the meat to. And so I figured that would be the same thing I needed to do with Jane was to just like barf out this whole skeleton of the book. But the thing is I hadn't been with Jane for as long as I was with Anne. Right. So I didn't, I didn't know Jane's story as well. Like with Anne, I just had it, you know, I knew it all. Um, and with Jane, I didn't. And so with Jane, I actually sat down and like, as I wrote it was like putting in the quotes and the citations. So all the things I couldn't do with Anne, like everything that hampered me with Anne, like trying to write that way was, and that, that's how I wrote the, the Jane book. It was like huh. the exact opposite of how I wrote the Anne book, which I didn't expect at all. But again, like the, these books just kind of take on a life of their own. Yeah. Once they get going, like, it's. Yeah. They yeah. kind of dictate to you yeah. what. This, yep. this is how it's going to go. And you just so, got to yeah. stay out of their way. Just, you do. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I wrote the Jane book was how I thought I would write the Anne book and yeah. couldn't. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. No, it does. I, I get that. I, I've, I've had that happen a few times with projects, which is, you know, okay, well, I'm going to try doing it this way, and I know this is the way to do it. And then the book says, no, it is not yeah. the way to write this. But then three projects down the road, it says, oh, that thing you wanted to try, try it now. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it is. I I try and get out of my way enough to let that happen. It's rare that I do, but (laughs) when I do, when I do, I try and appreciate those, you know, three minutes that I do that. Yes. So um, I I would be remiss if I did not bring up My Little Pony. (laughs) Yes. Um. (laughs) So I, I mean, what was it? How long did you write the the series? Um, I mean, I was one of many writers on it, and oh gosh, I mean, I haven't worked on it because I got so head on into Jane um, that I haven't worked on it for over a year now. Okay, but it was probably yeah, it was probably like a good like six years, okay, like on and off. And I ended up writing, I think I ended up writing about twenty five issues of it. How, were, was writing comics always on your radar? No, no, not at all. Oh, okay. Not at all. No, no. You know, I, I, I was really not a comic book reader growing up, other than like maybe the Star Wars comics when I was really little. 
um, that I ended up marrying a comic book writer. Mm -hmm. And so I certainly like got, got my crash course there. And a few years ago, there was a friend of ours, um, who's edited some books. And at one point he was going to have me be kind of like a research consultant on a project he was working on that, that never came to pass. And then he contacted me a few years later because he was working on a project called colonial comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is like, a, you know, just little, like an anthology of stories related to the American colonial period. And when yeah. he contacted me, I thought, Oh, he probably wants me to be like a research consultant on this. And he said, no, I wanted you to write one of the stories. And I had never considered writing comics. I was absolutely like blown away. And so, you know, I wrote this little short story for colonial comics that I'm, I'm kind of proud of because I had to do a lot of research on it. Um, and then once the Anne Dvorak book came out, I think my husband wanted to stop me from, from doing that again or doing something <laughs> similar. And um, he said, you know, why don't you go talk to IDW and see if they'll let you pitch for ponies? And, you know, at the time, my daughter was like three years old and we had been watching the show and I just loved it. So, yeah, so I pitched and they they let me start writing them. And it was it was a hell of a lot of fun. I really enjoyed working on ponies. Well, I, I, I read the the. In particular, the two issues you told me to check out issues what Fiendship is Magic number two and uh, in number thirty six. Um, so, what was it about those two that made you tell me to pick them out? Um, well, the the Friends Forever one um, I had you read it was Ra- Rainbow Dash and Soren, mm-hmm. and it's it is my tribute to Howard Hawks' film Only Angels Have Wings. Okay. And um, one, I love that I have like a Cary Grant pony in it <laughs> and a yep. Thomas Mitchell pony. Um, and that was when I had, I had been pitching that issue in different ways for like a few, a few years. Okay. Um, so my, that my editor kept saying no, like I would pitch it and he would say no of why it wouldn't work. Okay. I'm going to see if I can get my dog. Go outside, buddy. I'm just going to kick them out and we'll see how much noise they make. Sorry. Um, yeah, so I kept, I kept, yeah, I kept pitching it, it with, with different characters and slightly different themes. And he just kept shooting it down, you know, and, and he would receive so many pitches that he would never remember, you know, what, what we pitched. And so I finally came up with a version of it that he said yes to. <laughs> I was just very, very proud that this thing I thought might never get made um, finally did. So, and I just I think it turned out really well. They they were all very fun issues to read. I, um, so I I want to go back to your one of the things you wrote on your blog, and that's about how you, know, you and your husband you, how you got married, and it was because of his his diabetes you, for the had gotten out of control. It was for the health insurance, and I mean that I think that was how you and I first started interacting was over that story, and because I have type one, and so I. And and a spouse who is you know well insured as a state employee. Um, so can you tell the story of, behind that? Yeah, when I met you know when I met my husband, he so he he has he has type one LADA, so Ooh. it's like type one that came on later on in life. Um, he's probably similar to yours. And my, yeah, okay, but, yeah. But he was but he was misdiagnosed as type two. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So I think he wasn't treated properly. And then, you know, and then he just, he didn't have insurance. And so at the time that I met him, if he was kind of monitoring his diabetes himself, and if things seemed to get out of whack, he would go to a free clinic. Mm. We didn't have a regular doctor he was seeing. And I remember, you know, something I hadn't thought about for so long, you know, he was on metformin 
mm-hmm. but it, it was really expensive. So like I went and like helped him get a Costco membership because it was so much cheaper wow. at Costco. And so, you know, we were planning on getting married and we wanted to, um, you know, have the, the wedding ceremony at Anne Dvorak's house, but you know, the diabetes was out of control. And so we just said, screw it. And, and had, you know, did the civil service ceremony, um, you know, didn't really tell anybody, which looking back is so silly, but, you know, we thought, oh, you know, proper wedding etiquette, you know, we shouldn't, you know, be telling people that we're already married, which, you know, looking back is so incredibly stupid, but that's what we had to do to give, you know, to get him the health insurance. And it was so funny because, you know, when he first started dating me, he would tell his friends, like, I'm dating a librarian. They're like, oh, oh, she has that city, you know, that civil service insurance. And they would all like, you know, like he, he bagged one that has like the great insurance, <laughs> um, which I just think is, you know, so, you know, just speaks volumes about how screwed up, well, <laughs> you know, how screwed up the insurance, yeah. our healthcare system is, which so, we all know it is. Yeah. I mean, like, okay. So do you guys, you know, get along well? Yeah, she's great. We have a good time. How's the insurance? What? You know, yeah. that, that's the, the new dating criterion is. Yeah. Oh, you're not kidding. No, you're not no, kidding. no, no. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was lucky. I, I got married before my <laughs> pancreas or my immune system exploded. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I, I have a, actually a question for you about that is that not about pancreas exploding, but, and I'm, I'm sure your husband knows this too, but you know, when, when you have type one, it is, you know, you're just in it day in, day out, 24 seven. It's the, the management of it and everything. And I, and I know that I get wrapped up in that. And mm-hmm. so what do I need to know? from the perspective of a spouse of someone who's living with type one to be more cognizant of how it's impacting my spouse. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what, one of the hard things is Josh and I like both absolutely love to eat. Mm -hmm. And so I think, and we both love sweets. And so I think we sometimes like, we sometimes, you know, or he will try to ignore what, that he does have you know these issues mm-hmm. and yeah i remember a guy was a number of years ago and i think it, it it was starting to get out of control again and i remember we went out for dinner and it was like this fancy mexican restaurant and they had like this churro platter that he wanted to like this churro and ice cream platter that he wanted to order mm-hmm. and i'm like should, should you really get that and he's like yeah yeah it'll be fine because i think he knew his doctor was about to just kind of go nuclear on him <laughs> Um, and make him start, you know, go off the metformin and start actually having to inject insulin. Um, and he did that. And then after the fact, I was like, oh my God, why did I, you know, (laughs) why did I let him do that? And I just, you know, I just felt so awful. Um, since then, like he, he has got it out of control and under control. So he's on a pump, um, so I think that that helps him manage it a lot. But I think, you know, he's kind of gotten me just more involved and mm-hmm. more aware of it. Because I think early on, it would just, you know, he would present everything in the most like gloom and doom scenario. And so I've always kind of had this this attitude, like every day is precious because I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um and looking back, you know, it's kind of, 
it angers me a little bit that early on in our relationship, he just wasn't taking care of himself. So, you know, it's a terrible thing to have to live with. Um, but I think, you know, understand probably her at the back of her mind, you know, might be thinking, well, you know, gosh, I might not have him here as long as, as I was planning on it and just be like sympathetic to that. But maybe take care of yourself. Yeah. Like, you're not, you're, you're not invincible. And it is something that, you know, that certainly has to be managed. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 mine, I mean, I came in, you know, from, you know, I was like 10 minutes from dead when they figured out what I had. And so mine, I'm, I'm, I always say there's kind of a, there's a fine line between living and staying alive with it. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of cross. And I, I think sometimes I, I miss the living part of it. Um, I, but I always joke with, with my wife is like, you know what, when it's my time though, just bring me that gallon of cookies and cream. I'm, I'm, right? go- I'm going out in style. That's it. You know, I guess. Yeah, for- Go ahead. I guess yeah, I would, I would say for me when, when it's my time, bring me that carton of cigarettes. Yeah, I really, I'm the cigarettes I, I too. Really, yeah, I really miss smoking. I, I do too. I it's smoking. been it's been ten years since I quit. How long for you? Yeah. It's been oh, I think almost twelve. I I quit okay. the second I found out I was pregnant. Okay. And my daughter's about to turn eleven, so it's been okay. you know like eleven and a half years. Yeah. Yeah, I I I've been asked like so do. You, you know, how long has it been since you quit smoking? I'm like, oh, you know, 10 years. I'm like, oh, I bet you don't miss it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I miss it every day. I do too. God, but I walk past people who are smoking. I know. I love secondhand I smoke now. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inhale vicariously through you. And yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I used to, you know, my, uh, you know, if people were standing outside and I would just kind of drift closer. My, my wife is like, what are you doing? My, it's a secondhand smoke. Just leave me alone. Let me enjoy this. Let me have my moment. Just let me have a little bit. Just a little. Yeah, but I think like because my husband, he was in his mid twenties when he got was diagnosed with diabetes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think in your mid twenties, you you still feel like you should be invincible. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think there was that tendency to just not take it as seriously. You know, plus he didn't have the resources. Also, yeah. so he, you know, it was you know st- stupidity and false invincibility of youth and then not having health insurance. So I think there was just a, you know, a lot of years where he wasn't able to manage it properly and, you know, probably mentally just wasn't capable of taking it seriously at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you were older when. Yeah, I was 35. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're more. <laughs> yeah, All I, of us should be diagnosed with diabetes when we're much older. And uh, yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I just remember my wife telling me, oh, "Oh, yeah, when I was when I turned 35, that was when I really felt things starting to go, you know, change and everything." I was like, "Oh, yeah, 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 I'm fine." And I was like 34. I was like, "Yeah, I'll be fine." 35. Guess what? You have type one diabetes. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the invincibility of youth wore off pretty quickly. Right then. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, but but yeah, Josh, he's kept it under control, and having the the pump has helped him a lot. Yeah. So, I yeah. think I feel I feel a little bit less fatalistic about all of it than than I used to probably. We're we're heading in towards the end here, so. But what did you come away with, personally, from you know writing the stories of such? I mean, two wildly divergent personalities, but, you know, extremely compelling, extremely complex women. So what did you personally, what did it, you know, it, what did, what did you take away from it? The experience? 
you know, with, with Anne, you know, it was so interesting because, you know, I, I, I absolutely fell in love with Anne when I was probably in my early, tw- I was around in my early 20s. And the book came out when I was just shy of my 40th birthday. And so when I first, you know, discovered her, I, you know, I was so frustrated by her. And I really hated that first husband, Leslie Fenton, because I felt like he was the one who truly sabotaged her career. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't understand it. And, you know, as my life progressed and as I, you know, fell in love and got married and had a kid, you know, um, my attitude toward all of those um, decisions that Anne made softened a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was writing about her eloping and then walking out on her contract was this week that I had, um, about a year after my daughter was born, I'd been diagnosed with thyroid cancer and I you know, had to have my thyroid removed and I had to do um, this, that, this uh, iodine radiation treatment. Mm. Where it's just this one-time treatment where you like actually ingest like radiation, okay, and then you ha- you have to be quarantined for a week. So I had to be away from my daughter for an entire week. I went to my mom's house because she had a spare room, and so it's like I'm away from the people I love most. And you're radioactive. I'm, writing, I'm radioactive. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, and writing and writing about Anne, like falling in love and walking out on her contract and kind of torpedoing her career because of this person. And it, it just, it, it made me appreciate it more. And so, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is, you know, a friend of mine who, who I've known for years, who would always joke about Leslie Fenton and how awful he was. And we, we, we frequently trash talk Leslie Fenton. And, and, did, after the, and didn't Leslie oh, Fenton like date Anne's mother before he met Anne? I think, yeah, I think he <laughs> supposedly did. Yeah. He supposedly said. I saw that in the book. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. yeah. I for- oh, God, I for- actually forgot about that. I think I blocked that out. Yeah, I can see um, why you would. Yeah. Um, but when the book came out, like, my friends read it, and she said, you were really fair to him. I said, really? She goes, yeah, you were super, super fair to Leslie Fenton. So I was, I was very proud of that. And so, yeah, my, my perspective on, on Anne changed a lot. And I think by the end of it all, um, yeah, I just kind of, kind of judged everyone a lot less harshly than I did when I was young and, and maybe knew it all. Um, one of the things about Jane, like my big, you know, Jane's like a very complex person, but the thing I really love about Jane is how secure she was with herself and how much she genuinely wanted to see people around her succeed Mm -hmm. and how much she wanted to see other women succeed. Because I think, you know, as, as women, we're kind of, I don't know if we're taught or how it happens, but very early on, we just kind of pit ourselves against each other and kind of, um, you know, judge each other and assess our own worth on the accomplishments of others. And, you know, for me, it was like very crippling for a long time. And I finally got to an age where I just didn't care anymore. And I could honestly look at the women around me and be happy for them and be supportive. And Jane always had that. And so I just think that is such an incredible strength. And I think that that's, I think that's something wonderful to put out in the world that, you know, prop other people up and be proud of other people's accomplishments and don't like judge your own accomplishments um, against what others have done. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an inspiration. And and I certainly hope that's something 
I hope that's something my daughter can like grow up with. And I hope she just doesn't start judging herself too harshly against people. But that was something I absolutely loved about Jane that that really struck me about her. It, this is the usual last question I ask people, but um, so where can people find you, connect with you, all that good stuff? Yeah, so let's see. I'm on Twitter. It's at Christina Rice because I signed up for Twitter really early on in the game. Nice. Um, I have three different websites. So I have andavorak.com, which is, um, God, I've been running for almost 19 years, wow. which is kind of crazy. The, the first iteration was a Microsoft front page <laughs> website. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to the, go to the internet archive and check that out. I was very proud of it. I was very, <laughs> very proud of it. Um, Jane Russell biography.com is, uh, my website about all things Jane. And then I have my own author website, um, Christina Rice writes, and I've been posting um, daily Jane things uh, on Instagram at Jane Russell Bio, as well as Twitter and the website, because I'm a compulsive collector. So I bought way more Jane Russell stuff than I actually needed to put in the book. So I figure I need to do something with all of this Jane Russell stuff. <laughs> I, I think I probably have like four or 500 photos of her and, you know, use like 80 in the book, m many of which I got from elsewhere. <laughs> so, um, yes, please, please, please check out my Jane Russell post. And, and what's funny, because I, I did this with Anne, too, mm -hmm. when, when the year the book came out, I did the year of Anne Dvorak and I posted something daily but with Anne I did like in-depth you know because this is when blogs were you know really you know, everybody was blogging in 2013 and so every day I would do these really long <laughs> Anne Dvorak blog posts that just took the wind out of me and with Jane I'm just kind of throwing stuff up um just really brief little snippets and that seems to go over way better <laughs> nobody wants anybody wants to sit and read a bunch <laughs> of stuff so well, yeah well, all I know is that I'm I'm really I I think your I think you need to your next comic series if you try it I think it needs to have the title that, of Anne Dvorak clubs coyotes because <laughs> I would read the hell out of that comic. Maybe I do need to do that. Yeah, yeah that, that was probably the best headline of Anne. That's so great. The best headline of Anne Dvorak's career, and, and she she did club that coyote. Hey. <laughs> She saved those chickens on the ranch. All right. Once again, many thanks to Christina for taking the time to chat with me. And be sure to check out her new book, Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, out as of this week from University Press of Kentucky. And once you do that, go read her Anne Dvorak book, for an absolutely compelling look at one of the most fascinating and maddeningly frustrating figures in Hollywood history. And then go read My Little Pony, because it is really good. And as ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise at me, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com. And you can check out earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod. Oh, and if you want to keep up with what I'm working on, um, best way to do that is via my monthly-ish macro parentheticals newsletter, which you can sign up for if you're so inclined at buttondown.email slash TWWeaver. And I guess that's it. My dogs have not started barking. And all is well. See you next time.